Hi, I'm John Schaefer, reporter for Citywide Wealth Manager. Today we're looking at the Enterprise Investment Scheme and whether the benefits of these tax advantage investments really outweigh the risks. EIS changed drastically in 2018. Major rule changes meant that capital preservation ploys had to be completely eradicated from the market. This caused several providers of these investments to U-turn their strategies to a growth mindset. I'm here with Andrew Aldridge, partner at Deepbridge Capital and EIS Investment Manager. Andrew, thanks for coming into the studio today. Hi, John. Thank you. So Deepbridge was perhaps ahead of the game when the rule changes came in, as you're mainly focused on early stage technology and life sciences investments. But what has the demand been for EIS at Deepbridge in the past year? I think it's uh, certainly over you know, the last five years, we've had year on year growth. Um, I think that's partly down to the fact that Deepbridge has grown as a name in the industry. And uh, I think our track record and our approach um, is, uh, is, is continuing to be accepted. Um, I think the, the patient capital review and the changes that, uh, that you alluded to previously, um, they obviously um, have, have changed the market. I think um, advisors and investors recognize that Deepbridge has always been in the growth focused EIS space. Um, so although some of our peers have had to change tack and, uh, and to come at it from a different angle, you know, we've been consistent and persistent in our messaging over the last five years that this is what we do and how we do it. So, so did you basically blow up after the, the rule changes? Did, um, did everyone pile into Deepbridge because other people were looking at capital preservation investments? I, I think we've, we've seen good growth over the last couple of years. So last year we saw um, just over 30% growth in EIS fundraising year on year. Um, in 2019, um, obviously we've got a couple of weeks left, uh, but we're currently about 38% up on what we did in 2018. Um, so it's not that we've kind of suddenly gone from, from a small acorn to, a, to an oak tree overnight. Uh, we've seen good steady growth, which means we've been able to scale the business accordingly and, and do what we do well without uh, kind of being inundated and, and blown away by it. Yeah, of course. Do you think more generally, though, in the EIS industry that people have been, been turned off the product um, since the, the risk profile has increased? Um, that's an interesting one. I think there's there's an element when you look at statistics, the element that um, those that liked renewable energy or liked bulk storage or, or all those kind of or crematorium, whatever those kind of inverted commas, lower risky ISs were. Yeah. I mean, th- th- those were, were discounted in the 2015 real changes. The, the renewable right? energy, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Um, but yeah, so over the years, we, we've seen the move, the, 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 the attitude change. I think we've seen um, earlier this year, we've seen, um, you know, some high profile EISs which were in inverted commas lower risk EISs blow up Mm. and I think that's really focused advisors minds actually EIS should be about risk taking ultimately the government wants people to be taking risk they want to be seeing the return on their investment if they're going to give these generous tax reliefs they want to see income coming into the treasury from uh, increased employment increased exports etc so that's why the government changed things and I think people accept that and I think the fact that the lower risk EISs are, are no longer there I think most people are saying, well, actually, yeah, there has been some high-profile issues there. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's not where you want to be. Actually, if you're going to do this, you've got to have a portfolio of companies, and some will be really well. You will have failures. But the fact is, if mm-hmm. you've got the ones that are doing well, um, then that offsets what you're, what you're going to lose. So I think that I think the appetite is still there, um, but I think people are, to some degree, reassured that all the providers in the market are now doing things for the right reasons. It's not just about tax play and three years in a day, you get one pound and a penny back if you're lucky, uh, but haven't you done well because you've got your 30% income tax sure. back? I think now people are realising that actually this is a growth product and actually you should be targeting real growth. So who can afford to take that risk on EIS? Who's it for? Uh, that's interesting. I think, yeah, just anecdotally, um, 
we've seen a, a bit of a sea change over the last few years. Um, certainly historically, it was people who had a specific tax need, whether that be a CGT liability or an income tax liability. And it was, like I said, you know, you, you put your money in three years in a day, you get it back. I think what we're seeing now is that whether that be through pension lifetime allowances, annual allowances, et cetera, more and more people are looking for alternative tax pla efficient places to put their cash. But also we're seeing more and more people looking at this as potentially a very small part of their portfolio, which is actually growth focused. And actually, where else can you go for genuine growth? I mean, you know, some of our companies, you know, most EIs provide in the market now, on a single company basis, are looking for four or five times return plus over a five, six year period. That's kind of unheard of if you look at the main markets and, and what have you. So, so from that perspective, I think we're seeing more and more people getting comfortable with the IS and actually utilizing it as a very, only a very small part of a, a well-diversified mm. portfolio. Do you think investors are really aware of the lack of liquidity of EIS? I mean, I, I know that the um, the three-year figures always touted that, you know, you, you invest in EIS for three years and you get the tax relief, but are people aware of how long they really need to be invested and how long do you think they need to be invested? Again, I think because of the uh, the changes to the market, I think people are more aware now. Um, you know, it, it's not just us uh, banging the, the drum for, for growth-focused, longer-term EIS investments. Um, you know, the rest of the market are now talking about tech, life sciences, media, et cetera, where it's not, you know, it's an organic exit so that could take three years, could take six years, could take longer in certain cases. So I think the market is much more understanding of that. Um, I think people are, I think people aware of the illiquidity of it, mm -hmm. and I think you have to be. But so I mean, would you be able to put a, a t an average time that you think people need to be to be expecting? I, I think it, it's not a three-year play. You're looking at a five-year play potentially yeah. five to six year play. Um, out of our, yeah, we've been in the EIS market for just coming up to six years. Um, we've got, out of our first three companies, when we first started out, we had three companies in our tech portfolio. Um, one's fully exited, one's partially exited, and one is growing very well, but that's six, nearly six years in now. That may well be, you know, it could be this year, it could be next year, you know, that could be a six, seven year play. Um, but then our earliest one was a three year play. Yeah. So you're looking three, six years probably is what I'd suggest is what people should be expecting, but some may take longer. So of those exits, can you perhaps go into a little bit of detail about who they were, why they were successful, how, how you dealt with it, how you contributed to that success? Sure. Um, I think uh, one of our uh, our most recent exits uh, was an exit which returned up to three times for investors. Um, that was a company that we brought over from the States and brought to the UK under permanent establishment rules and funded via EIS. Um, it went through a merger about two years ago. We merged into iPipeline, which many of your listeners and, and readers will be fairly, fully aware of who iPipeline are. Uh, and then iPipeline exited um, in a $1.6 billion deal this year. Um, so our investors were only a very small part of that. Um, it was interesting when we were doing the merger of, uh, of our original investments. I think that's where um, situations like that is where our style of management, which is very hands-on, very engagement investing companies, comes into its own. Uh, so, you know, the original deal that was on the table, uh, which the, the MD and the founders were quite pleased with, would have actually been quite detrimental to our investors, but because we were engaged with the company, we worked with them, we knew exactly what was happening, we were able to dictate the terms of the deal to make sure that our investors got the best return, part of the merger, 
with iPipeline, they got you know, the right stocks, the right shares to make sure that they were able to get the exits when uh, iPipeline ultimately exited. And I think that's the thing that I think people resonate with our message is that we don't just give companies cash and walk away and hope for the best. You know, we are fully engaged with these companies. You know, we've got companies where maybe things aren't going as well as you'd hope. So we can load the board. We can bring in other non-execs. Sure. We can actually really help roll up our sleeves I, and help them. I suppose that really hands-on approach must cost a lot. And, and w w how does yeah. that impact the fees that you're, you're charging the investors? Yeah, I think in terms of, I mean, we, we make no bones about it. Yeah, we, we charge um, the investee company our fees, not the investor. So if the investor puts £100,000 in, they get £100,000 worth of tax relief, etc. We charge the investee company. Uh, we're quite open about what we charge. We're certainly not the cheapest funding on, in the world. If you are a tech or life sciences entrepreneur and you want DeepBridge to be on your team and to be funding you, it's because they want what we bring to the table in terms of supporting if them. If you're charging the investee company, doesn't that impact their success? Surely they're trying to raise capital. And if you're taking a chunk off by charging the investee company. A again, it's, it's what you bring to the table. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, you, you, whether we're helping them with exports and opening doors overseas, that in itself is, is highly valuable to those guys. It can be down to little things. It can be helping them bring in the right commercial team to take a company forward. So it's not, I think it's about value for money rather than cost. And we mm. believe that we bring investing companies genuine value for money for what we do to support them and help them. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily a linear thing that you charge X and, and it's detrimental because of this. I think it's you charge X and what is the package that the investing companies are and, getting. And how much do you charge the investing companies? Uh, 5%. 5%, yeah. okay. Um, and you've obviously talked about the risk element of EIS um, and some of your success stories, but what about some of the failures? Well, where are we, with, with every up, there must be a down. So, so where, where has DeepBridge made um, not the greatest investment? Yeah, I think anybody investing in the EIS space, um, the early stage business, there will be failures. That is, everybody should be fully aware of that going in. Um, I think it's about how people try and mitigate those 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 failures, etc., and, and reduce them. We touch wood. We're in a very modern studio here. There's no wood for me to touch. Um, but touch wood, we've not had any failures to date. We will do. We've done over 50 EIS investments to date. Over 70 SEIS investments. I think over the next probably six, 12 months, we'll see certainly some of our early stage SEIS companies will probably have a, a few of those where, where they're probably at the moment, you know, kind of on the last chance saloon. Um, so yeah, I think investors should be prepared for that. I think, you know, some of our companies are probably slightly behind where we'd like them to be. Um, and that's again, where because we know that and we can work with them, we can actually put steps in place to help them get back to where they should be. So one of our companies, uh, I won't name names because that wouldn't be fair on them, but yeah. you know, it's probably 18 months behind where they should be on their on their growth cycle. So we've loaded the board, we've brought in non-exec directors that, that we know and trust who can really commercialize and ramp up the speed of their commercialization. So things like that we can actually do because we are hands-on involved with them. We can identify those issues and, and try and run them. So, so, for example, the company that's 18 months behind, um, do, you, do you consider them sort of a, a quote-unquote zombie company? You get the, these companies that perhaps haven't really done much. Um, they're probably not going to fail but they're probably not going to grow exponentially in the same way as well. I would, I would again, touch wood, I'd say none of our EIS companies fall into that category. I think some of our SEIS probably will do, and that's why I'm saying in probably the next six, 12 months, actually, some of those will have to just make a judgment call and say, well, actually, they're not doing what they should be doing. So actually, it's better for our investors to cull them now. The clients can get their loss relief, et cetera, and, and we move on. And obviously, everyone invests as part of a portfolio. So if somebody's got 
10 SEIs companies and two of them fail. Yeah, we always started out assuming that at least 40% of SEIs companies would fail. I think that was a fair assumption to start with. We're nowhere near that kind of metric at the moment. Um, and I think that's uh, I think that's testament to our due diligence and our identifying companies. But some of those companies are, you're exactly right, are zombies. They, they, they maybe made some good progress, not done a huge amount. And that's where we then have to step in and actually make that judgment call to cull them, move on, get, let our clients get their loss relief and, and move on. What do you think um, the impact of a, a potential hard Brexit would have on these investee companies? Because, you know, they're, they're growth companies, they're, they're very reliant on um, perhaps international trade, especially if they're technology companies, which I know you invest in heavily, and uh, life sciences companies. They're very much um, the onus is, is on international trade. So how would a, a hard Brexit affect them? Um, I think, again, you, you've got, I think, for an, a large established business, you know, a, a change in tariffs or a change in trade uh, circumstances uh, will, will, could be catastrophic to a large company. I think for young growth-focused companies, they are agile by their very nature, so they can change, they can move things. All of our companies we look at, if we're investing in a company, we have to be able to identify global scalability. So it's not that they're looking at the European market or they're looking at other specific, they are looking globally, so they might be China, it might be US, it might be Brazil, Australia, etc. So these guys aren't necessarily reliant on the relationship with the EU, or et cetera. Um, so I think for a lot of these companies, it is, it's about just finding those opportunities, finding what they're doing. And uh, I think, again, growth-focused companies and early-stage businesses are agile. So I think from that perspective, yeah, most of them will, will find a way to, to, to best what they're doing. Yeah. Um, obviously, perhaps the, the biggest industry story um, of the year is the, the Woodford debacle. Now, obviously, it's uh, quite a different product that we're looking sure. at EIS um, compared to, to an open-ended equity fund. But I'm sure there were a lot of concerns from investors um, looking at liquidity and looking at um, unlisted companies. And, and how have you dealt with those concerns over the past year? I think the biggest thing is that a lot of the advisors that we've spoken to have seen it as an opportunity with the sense that one of the question marks or one of the challenges regarding the whole Woodford situation was investors saying they didn't realise they were in illiquid stocks or as much illiquid stocks as in portfolios they, they, they expected. So I think you know, if you are investing in illiquid stocks, you've got to know they're illiquid. And if you're investing in DIS, you fundamentally know they are illiquid stocks. You know, if you're investing in, and you say you didn't realise they're illiquid, then, then somebody somewhere has done their job wrong. Sure. And secondly, if you're on the advice and you are looking at you know, a proportion of a client's in investments to go into unquoted stocks for the potential high growth um, you know, element, why not use EIS? you get the tax release, you've got the income tax relief, you've got CGT exempt growth, you can defer CGT, and you've got loss relief. You know, if you're going to unquoted stocks and you've not benefited from the IS tax reliefs, again, potentially somebody's done their job wrong in sure. the sense that yeah. you know, utilizing the IS, I think one thing that people don't often understand is the power of loss relief. I mean, if you mm. utilize income tax relief and loss relief and your investment fails, you can be risking as little as 38 and a half P in the pound. So yeah. why would you invest in unquoted stocks that weren't EIS qualified, I think is the question. I think that's been a real, a real kind of light bulb moment for some of our advisors to actually go, actually, do you know what? People want unquoted stocks, but utilize EIS, they've got all the added benefits. I mean, you say it's a, a mature market, but there's still issues over fee transparency. There's, there's you know, um, for every EIS manager, there's a litany of different fees that investors have and advisors have to look at, and it's quite difficult to compare them. So um, why do you think that is, and, and does it need to get better? I think so, but again, I, it's it's a question that we've been coming across uh, you know, in, in the last five, six years that we've been in the EIS market. It's something which raises its head pretty much all the time. 
I think it is hard to compare apples and pears sometimes. If you are a passive investment manager and you're charging an investee company 3%, or you're a very active manager, you're charging not, 5%, is I, that... I, I, I'm, no, I'm, not, I'm, I'm asking directly mm. different EIS propositions. Yeah. It's not a passive investment vehicle. They're all active investment vehicles. I mean... Well, in terms of, I mean, in terms of how the manager interacts with the money once it's yeah. been invested. You know, some managers will write a check to somebody. There you go, there's your check for your EIS funding. Come back to us when you've exited. There's no value add there. There's no support for the company, etc. I think, but if you are, you know, the, the way we approach it is that you should be hands-on with these companies, support them, they're early stage companies, they need support. And how do you put a metric on that, actually? I think the only way you can actually tell what the value for money is, uh, and it's you know, value for money rather than cost, I think is actually through performance and exits. So I think, I don't think you can judge just fees without judging performance uh, as well. Um, I think there's, huge strides we can take to make it tr more transparent. Um, we disclose fully what we charge investee companies. But do you not think there should be a standardized methodology for, for uh, exposing fees for each each of the managers? I, I agree. I think uh, yeah, we, we all have uh, key information documents, etc. now, so everything should be transparent. Whether other people are as transparent as not, I don't know, and that wouldn't be for me to judge. But you know, there's certainly, there are kind of loose standards at the moment, should we say. Um, I think we could probably do more to have a, a, a more direct comparison. Um, but even then, just comparing fees doesn't really tell the whole story. It's about what those fees actually bring to the table and actually the value that they add to, to the investor and the investee company. Hmm. I mean, we, we've had a few failures in the, in the past year or two. I mean, namely Oxford Capital and Genius. How, do you think that's impacted the market, impacted um, investor confidence in EIS? I, I think uh, undoubtedly it has. Um, I think, again, um, I'm always very much look on the on the positive side of things. I'm, I'm a natural optimist, um, but I think what it has shown people is that there was no such thing as a low risk EIS, which maybe some advisors have been sold in the past. Whereas now in the growth focused market, I think people are going, well, actually, do you know what? If if that can fail, then actually, why are we doing that when actually we should be chasing growth? Because then, if you've got a portfolio of ten EIS companies and three do really well, and you have two failures, then actually y you're not relying on one sole company, which which is how those those structures kind of yeah, dominantly sure. operated. So I think there's it should offer more reassurance to people that actually the growth focused EIS world is actually where you should be. You shouldn't be trying to get a pound and a penny back for your investment. This should be a long term growth portfolio that you're looking at. So I mean, Deepridge was quite transparent that it was caught up in, in, in Raker Securities earlier this year, sure. um, going into special administration. Um, how exactly did you deal with that situation? You had some EIS funds caught in, in Raker, and, and how did you deal with your IFA community investors? Uh, the key thing for us is, is communication. Um, you know, I think you know the. the uh, I think when when the news came through, um, yeah, we were sat in the office. We immediately got together as a team. Uh, the, the next morning, we got all the team in early, and said, "Look, this is a message of reassurance." You know, the FCA stated right from the outset that they had no no reason to believe there was mm. anything untoward in terms of clients' holdings and clients' cash. That's exactly what they're still saying, which is great. Um, so our very early thing was about reassurance. It was just saying to people, "Look, this is what the FCA have said." If the FCA thought there was something wrong, they would say it. Sure. They, you know, they wouldn't hold they wouldn't hold punches. So it's about reassurance, being upfront. We send a weekly update out to all our advisors, just updating what's going on, where the situation is, so that they can then report on yeah. to clients. Uh, and I think anything like that, it's it's about fronting up. You can't hide. You can't run away. Um, you've got to be empathetic, understand the concern. This is going to cause advisors and clients, and just just do what we can to make sure people are in the loop. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. you. You were you did put messaging up on your website. Mm. You were quite transparent about it. And, yes. and 
is there sort of light at the end of the tunnel for, for that situation? Do you know when the money will be released? And, 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 and Because obviously that, that money can't go to your investee companies at the Absolutely. moment. Um, the, the latest we've had, um, the uh, RICA had a, um, also the Joint Special Administrators held a, a clients and creditors meeting on Monday of this week, um, which again was predominantly about reassurance, just reassuring that there's nothing untowards with the cash. They're still completing their reconciliation. Um, as soon as that's finished, um, they're looking to, to basically um, sell the, the, the asset or the book essentially at Riker. Um, and at that point, then they'll be able to give us timescales. So at the moment, it's too early to be able to say exact timescales. Um, and all we can do is work with them, make sure that we're reconciling everything for them. They've got everything they need. So actually it's as swift and as quickly as possible. You know, we're talking to the managers involved. You know, we, we speak regularly. So I think you know, we are all working together to make sure this gets resolved as quickly as possible. But we can't say it's going to be an overnight thing. It may it may take months, um, but it's just a matter that we've just got to deal with it. And uh, and again, it's just making sure that we, we keep those communication channels open and, and keep on, on top of things. Sure. Andrew, thank you so much for coming to the studio today. Thank you, John.